Thank you. Well, if you've got your Bibles, you might like to turn to um, 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to have five verses in 1 Peter 2. And then tomorrow night, we're going to have a few more verses from that section. And, and the picture that is used is the picture of a building site. God is the builder, and Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation of the building, and we are the living stones that are formed into that building, and the Old Testament is the blueprint by which the builder is constructing his spiritual temple. In five verses, there are three references to the Old Testament, Isaiah, Psalms, and Isaiah again. And, and, and the reason for that is that everything that's happening, as, as we see in the passage, has, has a, a background in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the people were, were very religious, and they had a, a temple, and, and they had sacrifices, and they had a mediator, a priest. And they boasted in that. And they kind of said, look at us, we've got those things, we've got all this religion, God must be pleased with us, no matter how we're living. The prophet Isaiah says, no, he's not. In fact, your religion makes God sick, because your heart is far away. And the people were saying things like, well, we're, we're okay, because we've got our temple, and we've got our priests, and we've got our sacrifices, and, and nothing will destroy us. And he says, you know what? You are taking refuge in lies. You think you've made a covenant with death. You think you're safe, but God is going to sweep away this temple. That's the bad news, but here's the good news. God's going to build a new temple. And what Peter says is, look, that's what he's doing with Jesus. He's building a new temple. Christ is the temple, and Christ is the high priest, and Christ is the sacrifice. And amazingly, because we're joined to Christ, then we become living temples, part of the temple that God is making, living stones. And we become priests, and we become living sacrifices. So that's the background. Pick up those things as the passage is read. Thank you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8 the living stone, and the chosen people. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. This is the word of the Lord. To God. Well, good evening. If you've got your Bibles there, turn to that passage. 
Uh, when I started my ministry quite a long time ago, I used to have what I rather grandly called a surgery. On a Wednesday morning, Wednesday evening, people could come and they could ask advice, they could share something, they could ask for prayer. One day, a young man came in and he looked as if he had the whole weight of the world on his shoulders. And before I could say anything, he said, Pastor, you've got to help me. I really need help. I've just had the very first argument with my wife. I don't know what to say. Well, they'd been married for six months and I was amazed it had taken them so long. (laughs) So I sat him down and I said, tell me about it. And he told me it was no big deal. So I said, look, it may come as a surprise, but, but actually very, very occasionally husbands and wives have an argument. Even Christians. So this is what you do. Go home, buy her some flowers, give her the flowers, tell her that you love her, let's work it out. So he went away with a a skip in his step. So I'm a couple of days later and I said, how did it go? He said, it was a disaster. She threw the flowers at me. I said, I I don't understand. Tell me what exactly. He said, I did exactly what you said. I, I went and I bought some flowers from the garage. I went in, I gave them to her. No, they were good flowers. <laughs> they weren't grotty or anything. I gave them to her and I said, Darling, the pastor told me to tell you <laughs> that I love you very much. Well, there you go. We live and learn. Actually, it's a good thing for husbands to tell their wives that they love them. You do that, don't you guys? <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing for wives to tell their husbands. Good things for parents to tell their kids. It's a good thing for kids to tell their parents. It's a good thing for pastors to tell their congregations they love them. It's a good thing for congregations to tell their pastors. I hope you do tell your pastor. And behind that is this amazing truth that God loves us and he wants us to know. He wants us to know that he loves us. I was speaking to to the missionaries here on furlough yesterday, and I shared from that chapter in in, in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, where Paul prays that amazing prayer. It's Ephesians 3, actually. And and he says, "I, I pray that you may be rooted and grounded in love, that you might know. And grasp how, how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ. The love that passes knowledge that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. That you may grasp that, 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 that it might just overwhelm you. Or, or in, a, in a simple sentence, God loves you more than you can imagine and he wants you to know it. God loves you more than you can imagine and he wants you to know it. On these last few evenings, we've been on a bit of a journey. We started with the dignity of human beings in the, in the garden. We went from dignity to depravity. The sinfulness of, of our parents, our sinfulness. And then we went on to redemption. We are God's redeemed people. And last night, we saw that we're joined to Christ. He is the vine, we are the branches, and, and, and we have fruit. And I know when you notice, one of the things I picked it up that Ephraim said a number of times, God loves you. You're, you're his child now. You belong to him. And we heard it this morning, didn't we, in 1 John? most important thing is not our love for God, although that's important. The important thing, the thing that defines us is his love for us. God loves us more than we can imagine. He wants us to know it. And one of the ways in which God expresses that love, the one way in which God, if you like, embraces us with that love and helps us to grasp it is by using metaphors to describe our relationship. So, so we are children in his family. God is my father. Think about that this moment. The God who made a hundred billion galaxies. So many stars that if you wanted to count them, it would just take you, well, 
almost eternity to count them. This God, great, glorious, magnificent, is my Father. And as we heard this morning, he wants to hear me when I pray. Jesus Christ is my older brother and he's got my back. <laughs> he's interceding for me. And I'm a, I'm a sheep in his flock so that the good shepherd loves me and he guides me and he guards me and he protects me and he feeds me and he knows me. He knows all the bad things and he still loves me and he loves me so much that he laid down his life for me. And, and I'm a soldier in his army and it's a battle and the battle is hard and the battle is hard. And some of you know that tonight how difficult the battle is. But, but Christ is victorious. I'm part of his army. He's the captain of my salvation. He's the strong son of God. He's the young prince of glory. He defeated Satan. He trampled him underfoot. He, he, he's got serpent all over his armor as we heard the other morning. And we're in him. And he doesn't leave casualties on the battlefield. No one's left behind. Everyone's going to get there. Those things wonderfully encourage us to understand that God loves us. But tonight, we're going to be looking at another image, which is slightly less resonant. We are living stones. Now, now, now what on earth does that mean? Well, actually, as I've studied it this week, I, I've been so excited. It's a wonderful picture. So if you don't mind, I'm going to share with you tonight what the Lord's taught me. Is that okay? You're not too sure, but here we go. <laughs> You've got your passage there in front of you. It seems to me the passage falls into two clear parts. Verses 4 to 6 are a wonderful encouragement, and then verses 7 to 8 are a stern warning. Verses 4 to 6, first of all, are a wonderful encouragement. Remember, Peter is speaking to suffering Christians, Christians who are going through all sorts of difficulties, all sorts of trials, back in chapter 1, verse 6, trials of all sorts, a fiery furnace of trial. And what he says to them, keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. And in order to encourage them, he gives us these wonderful pictures in verse 4 down to verse 6. And basically, he says two things in those verses. Number one, you need to understand who you are, your identity. And number two, you need to understand why you're here, your purpose. What is your identity? Who are you? Look at verse 5, if you will. You also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifice. Now, tomorrow night, we're going to learn about uh, a holy priesthood and spiritual sacrifices. Tonight, we're thinking about being living stones, which is a kind of a strange statement, don't you think? When you normally think of a stone, you think of something that's dead. A living stone seems a contradiction. It's what, what we call an oxymoron. Um, for example, organized chaos is an oxymoron, or, or deafening silence, or rain-free Keswick. They kind of just don't go together, do they? So, so how on earth do we interpret it? Well, to understand it, we have to go back to verse 4. To understand it, we have to begin with Jesus. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, that's who he is, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, so you also like living stones, are being built. In the Old Testament, God is the rock. In the New Testament, Jesus is the living stone. And what you've got there in verse 4 is a dual assessment. In the, in the Greek, it's literally, on the one hand, this is what the world thinks of Jesus. On the other hand, this is what God thinks of him. As far as the world is concerned, he was rejected. He was despised. Look down at verse 7. The stone the builders rejected. 
The builders come along and they're wanting to build a building and they come to this stone called Jesus and they look at it and they say, that's rubbish. That can't fit in our building. That doesn't fit in our, in our categories. We don't want this stone. And they throw it on the rubbish dump. They get rid of it. It's worth nothing. And that's exactly what people did with Jesus. He came to his own and his own received him not. They hated him. He, he met with a tidal wave of hate. Total, absolute rejection. We do not want this man to rule over us. So they arrested him. And they mocked him. And they beat him. And they tortured him. And they spat in his face. And they threw him to the ground. And they drove nails through his hands and his feet. And they lifted up. And they killed him. And they thought they'd finished him. And that's the world's assessment. And and actually that's the world's assessment today. They don't want Jesus. He's nothing for them. But what about God? God's assessment is totally different. Look again at verse 4. Rejected by human beings, but chosen and precious to God. That's how God sees him. When God looks at his son, what he says is this one is chosen. It's precious. Just think of that word precious for a moment. What does it mean? It means highly honored. It means treated with esteem. God looks at his son and he loves him. Have you ever wondered what God was doing before Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the What was he doing before that? Well, I'll tell you what he was doing. God the Father was loving God the Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. In this, this amazing, stunning, breathtaking, breathtaking relationship of love, the Father adored his Son. The father rejoiced in his son. One of the first churches I used to preach at was a little chapel in Wiltshire. And the old boy who used to pray with you before the service, his name was Mr. Marsh. He was an old Wiltshire boy. I don't know how old he was. I mean, he looked like one of the deckhands on Noah's Ark. And, and he would pray. He would pray the most amazing prayers. And he always prayed the same phrase. Oh, oh God, we've come. We want to see Jesus. Oh, he is precious to us. He's the darling of heaven. And he's the darling of our hearts. He's the darling of heaven. He's loved by angels. The angels adore him. But beyond that and before that and for eternity, his father adored him. He loved him with an everlasting love. Listen to what um, one commentator puts, puts it like. For all eternity... The infinite joy and delight of the Father has found its focal point and its consummation in the Son. God has forever been delighted with the perfections of his Son. His Son, who is so indescribably beautiful and so perfect in holiness and so overwhelming in majesty, His son who is so awesome in power and so complete in love and so full of wisdom. His son is so untarnished in righteousness and so radiant in glory. And for eternal ages the father delighted in his son. It doesn't matter what the world says, the father delighted him. He was precious to the father. But he was also chosen. Chosen for a mission. This is my beloved son. With whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, says the Father. And Jesus comes on that mission. And what is that mission? Well, it's to leave behind the glory of heaven. 
and the acclaim of angels. And without ceasing to be God, to become a man. And to live amongst us as a real human being. So that he experiences pain. And experiences weariness. And he experiences even death itself. And he's nailed to a cross and he's rejected. And there on the cross, what is the most terrible thing? The most terrible thing is that God takes our sins and he puts them on his son and he punishes his son in our place so that the father who loves him turns his face away. Throughout all his earthly life, Jesus walks in the conscious awareness of the father's smile. The father loves me. And he prays to his father. He even uses the word Abba, Papa, Dada. He uses the word Father 180 times, even as they're nailing him to the, to, the, to the wood. Father, forgive them. But then in the darkness, in the darkness comes the cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the darkness, he who knew no sin becomes sin for us. That was the chosen course that he took. What a cost to the Father. We heard it earlier, didn't we? God so loved the world that he gave the darling of heaven to be crucified for you. Don't you love him tonight? Isn't he precious to you tonight, brothers and sisters? You say yes if you like. I hope he is. I hope he is. That's not the end of the story, of course, because he's not a dead stone. He's a living stone. You see that? Stone that died (laughs) is alive. Look look, look at how he describes it there in verse 6. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious stone. The one who trusts him will never be put to shame. Or verse 7, the stone the builders rejected, he's become the capstone. This is glorious in our eyes. Low in the grave he lay. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He, He reigns forever. Hallelujah, he's alive. He's conquered death. And God now takes him and he builds on the foundation of Christ. He builds on the foundation. And so therefore the most exciting thing is to be part of what God's doing. And that brings us then to verse 5. You as living stones are being built into a spiritual house. You know, that's what God has done. He's raised his son. He's building this spiritual temple. The foundation stone, the cornerstone is Christ. And then we become part of it. We become living stones. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it means quite simply is you're no longer a dead brick. You're a living stone. (laughs) You've been made alive in Christ. If you look back at chapter 1 and verse 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. You heard God's word. God's spirit opened your heart. You believed and you were saved. You were born again. He refers to being born again in chapter 1 and verse 3. Twice in this chapter, in chapter 1, he speaks about new birth. You, you become a living stone by receiving the life of God. What is a Christian? He's not somebody who does good things because they're a good person. No, a Christian is someone who's joined to Christ forever. A living stone, the life of God in the soul of man. I suspect that when Peter wrote those words, being born again, he has in mind Jesus' words with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a very religious man, comes to Jesus and Jesus says three times, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. I love the story about George Whitfield, the great 19th, 18th century revival preacher. And his favorite text, or one of his favorite texts, was John 3.3, 3, you must be born again. And he preached it over 500 times. Sometimes he'd preach it in the morning and in the evening. And he was preaching at a very posh 
sophisticated congregation in London. And after the service, the, the, the minister came to me and he said, look, you offended people this morning because you said they had to be born again. And, and some people in my congregation said, that's okay for the poor people, not us. That's okay for the uneducated, but not us. We're educated. We're, we're well-to-do. You cannot preach this evening if you preach on John 3, verse 3. And Whitfield said, I, I give you my word. I will not preach on John chapter 3 and verse 3 this evening. So that night he went into the pulpit and he said, I've been told not to preach on this text. I, I, I will keep my word. I will not preach on John 3. three. Instead, I'm going to preach on John chapter 3 and verse 7. Do not be surprised, I say to you, you must be born again. <laughs> and then followed the same sermon. Why? Why must you be born again? Because you must be born again. You're a dead brick until you become a living stone. And you become a living stone by being joined to Christ. And that means tonight in this hall or there online, if you don't know Christ, if you're not joined to Christ, if you haven't been connected with Christ, then you're still a dead brick. You need life. You need the life of the Spirit. You need to come to Christ. Will you come to him tonight? But actually, when in verse 4 it talks about coming to Christ, it's actually in the tense meaning you, you continually come to Christ. It's not just once and for all. It's ongoing. It's constantly coming, it's constantly feeding on Christ, it's constantly drinking at the fountainhead and, and, and feeding on the living bread. It, it's constantly, and I ask you a question, are you doing that? Are you drawing near to Christ daily? You know, Keswick's a wonderful place to be able to do that, to spend some time just resting in the Lord and, and waiting on God and spending time with God. How was your quiet time this morning? As we thought last night, are you abiding in Christ? If you love Christ, you want to be with Christ, don't you? That's just natural. We had four kids. When our kids finally left home, finally, someone said, it'll be, it'll be difficult, it's the empty nest syndrome. Can I tell you about the empty nest syndrome? It's wonderful. <laughs> it's marvellous. I mean, we love our kids, but boy. You know, I get time alone with my darling. With the one I love. And if you love Christ, that's what you'll do. How do we know if we love Christ tonight? Well, we'll look at what he says. For those who believe, he is precious. Verse test. There, verse seven, there's the test. Do you, do you, do you see him as precious? Is he more precious to you than, than anyone and anything else? To those who believe, oh, he is precious. When you read these things, when you think of the cross, when you think of Christ, does it, does it stir your heart? Does it just kind of blow your mind? Do you just want to shout hallelujah? I, I, I was preparing this week and I came across a story of a, of a, a Welsh lady, a poor Welsh lady living up in the valleys. And she was in a little Baptist church, but she loved the Lord. And, and whenever the pastor spoke about how wonderful Jesus was, she would always say, oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, the, 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 the president of their denomination was coming, and, and the pastor took her side. He said, Mary, our uh, 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 president is coming, and, and uh, he comes from Cardiff. And they don't say hallelujah in Cardiff. So we don't want to upset him, do we? So listen, I, I know how poor you are. If you don't say hallelujah, we'll give you some blankets. The winter's coming. And Mary said, well, the winter is coming and, and it's so cold. And All right, I'll, I'll do my best. So the man came and he announced his text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, to those who believe, he is precious. Hallelujah. Thank you. Hallelujah. 
And five minutes into the text, a similar voice came from the back. <laughs> blankets or no blankets, <laughs> hallelujah. Now, I was going to say, they don't say hallelujah in Cardiff, and they don't normally say hallelujah in Keswick either, but if you are a living stone, something inside you wants to say that. It's a wonderful thing. God has loved me so much that he's given me life, and he's joined me to Christ, and I have the life of Christ. He's the vine, and I'm a branch, and, and I bear fruit, as we thought last night. So there's, the, there's the, uh, the first thing, your identity, who you are. But then secondly, what is your purpose? What are you here for? Well, look again at verse 5. You, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. God is taking these stones. There's the, there's the quarry, and he's taking the stones, which is us, and he's putting them together in a spiritual house. All in all, you're not just another brick in the wall. <laughs> You are a living stone. Think, think of, a, think of a, a dry stone wall. Think of a master craftsman. And he takes a whole variety of stones. A wonderful disparity of stones. Some are one size, some are another. Some are one colour, some are another. Some are shaped like this and others like that. Some have got this texture the, and some have got... And he takes those stones and he puts them together. And this one goes here and this one goes here. And, and this one just fits there. And you look at it and you see his work and, and everything kind of fits together beautifully. But, but everything's different. And can I suggest that's the beauty of the church? You know, we're not a brick wall. <laughs> we're a living temple. And the amazing thing, what God is doing today, he's been doing it this week at Keswick, is, is taking stones out of the quarry and, and placing them in the wall. I'm sure that every Keswick people get saved. In fact, every day people get saved, and God's taken another stone and he's putting on. That's the beauty of the church, it's diversity. But it's also the challenge of the church, isn't it? Being different in the church is a real challenge. See, we are different, and we don't always naturally fit where we think we should fit. A few years ago, I was doing some work on church unity, so I went through the whole of the New Testament Every 27, one of the 27 books, looking at what they said about unity in the church. And I discovered something very interesting. Every single book, check it for yourself, every book speaks about the relationship between Christians, brothers and sisters. And it talks about the vertical relationship with God, but also our relationship with one another. As Jonathan was saying earlier about the church, how we fit together with one another. And two things dawned on me. Number one is really important. Number two, it's really difficult. Fitting people together in a spiritual building is, is not the easiest thing in the world. And so in each book in the New Testament, it says how important it is to work at it. We've been thinking about that in 1 John. One of the three tests is the love test. Do you love the brothers? And sisters, you can't say, I'm a Christian, and I love God, but I can't stand Christians. And Peter talks about it here. Look in your Bibles. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and slander of every kind. Stop being like that, he says. Or look down at chapter 3 and verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Or then look down at verse 7 of chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Jesus is coming back, as we were thinking this morning. Therefore, be alert and sober, uh, and don't stop praying. Above all, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over 
a multitude of sins. What he's saying is quite realistic. You know, church is a difficult place, and we do argue and we do disagree, but love one another because you're in this building together. And you look at some of the stones that are near you in the building, and you may not be keen on them. (laughs) When I started in ministry, I used to keep a record of everyone in the church. And at another time, because the church grew, I I would put a little note to remind me of people. And, and, you know, don't forget to ask about their bunions, or don't forget to ask about this or that. And, And some people, I would put next to them just two letters, GG, GG. And if they'd said, what does that mean next to my name, GG? The answer is it means grace grower. You are a wonderful grace grower. And if they'd said, well, what does that mean? Then I would have told them, it's because you are so awkward, (laughs) so difficult, so cantankerous, that actually God grows grace in me through you. (laughs) Now, here's my question. Do you have grace growers in your church? Perhaps it's the person who's sitting next to you at this very moment in time. (laughs) No, I don't know. That's why we have to work at love. We have to work hard at love. We have to work sacrificially at love because we're all part of this temple and we need each other. We need each other. I I, I just finished being a pastor in Bath and Whitcomb Baptist Church is very near to where the end of the Bath half marathon finishes. So we'd have our service on a Sunday morning then we'd go out near the end and we'd give out tracts and talk to people about the Lord. And there was one lady I'd never seen her before and, and it amazed me. She knew absolutely everybody. So somebody would be coming almost at the end and she'd say, come on, Bill, you're almost there. Well, well done, Bill. And when Bill heard his name, he would run a bit faster. Come on, Jane, you're almost there. And Jane would run a bit faster. And I thought, this girl is amazing. And then I realised all she was doing was reading their names off their, <laughs> off their shirts. But without fail, when they heard their name with a word of encouragement, they pressed on. And that's what the church is about. When, when the writer of the Hebrews talks about, you know, when you come together, don't stop joining together, encouraging one another towards love and good deeds. He's not talking to church leaders, he's talking to everybody. You have an agenda when you come to church, and your agenda is to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. What is my purpose? I'm being built into this amazing temple. And what's the purpose of the temple? Well, have a look at the next verse. The purpose purpose of the temple in... um, Chapter 2 and verse 5 is that you might be a spiritual house, a holy priesthood offering sacrifice. Remember in the Old Testament, the three things are temple and mediator, priest and sacrifice. And all those are fulfilled in Christ. And in a sense, they're fulfilled in us as well as we're joined to Christ. Now we'll think about the last two tomorrow night, but, but tonight a spiritual house. Throughout the Bible, God is seeking somewhere to dwell. He dwells with Adam and Eve in Eden because of sin. They're exiled. He comes to live in the tabernacle, and then he comes to live in the temple. And Ezekiel sees a time when God's glory will depart from the temple. And the, and the glory of God will return, says, says one of the prophets. And, and then the glory of God returns in the person of Christ. He comes amongst us, the word became flesh, and he tabernacled amongst us. And, and he stands there, and, and he, he declares this temple's going to be destroyed. And then he speaks of his own body, the temple. What happens on the day of Pentecost? On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in the church. Those verses that we read earlier in Ephesians, let me just remind you, you you may like to turn across, but you don't have to. Ephesians chapter 2 and and, um, 
verse 20. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. (laughs) What's the most exciting thing about your church? Let me tell you, it's not your pastor and his ministry. It's not your music group. It's not the fantastic coffee you serve at 12 o'clock every Sunday. Can I tell you what's the most fantastic thing about your church? That when you gather together as the people of God, your church is a spiritual temple and God is there. God is present in the midst of his people. Back in the 1970s, one of my friends used to travel across to Washington, D.C. quite regularly. He was there on a Sunday, and he went to a Baptist church. And, and, and one day, he said, I was sat there, and, and the front row was empty, and, and these men walked down, and they got crew cuts, and they were speaking into their ears. They were, they were secret service. And they took a look around, and then in the first hymn, President Jimmy Carter and his wife and his daughter came and sat on the front row. And then at the end, they left. He said, amazing, I've just been in the presence of the president. Wow. And this happened a couple of times. So one day he asked one of the church leaders, do people ever come to the church because they think the president's going to be here? And the man smiled and he said, every week we get phone calls and, and someone says, oh, what time's your service on Sunday morning? And incidentally, <laughs> will the president be there? And he said, we always give the same answer. We've got a pat answer. We have no idea if the president will be there because he doesn't tell us. It's a security matter. But if you come on Sunday, you will meet with someone far more more wonderful, far more powerful, and far more glorious than the president of the United States of America because we're expecting God to turn up. (laughs) Now, the world says to win the world, we have to become more like the world. Shall I tell you what the world needs? The world needs the church to be the church. Seeker-sensitive, all of those things, yes. But in the end, the people of God meeting with the living God and people come in and they say, there's something amazing. God is in this place. God is here. And we're part of that. Doesn't that excite you? Say yes. yes. Thank you. Thank you. So that's, the, that's the, the, the wonderful encouragement. But we can't finish there because in verses 7 and 8, we have a stern warning. A stern warning. Look, if you will, please, at verse 7. To those who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Men and women rejected Christ when he was on earth and they continue to reject him. They don't want to believe. Verse 8, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. They won't believe and they disobey. It's not that they can't believe, they don't want to believe. And so what does Christ become to them? He becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. The word which is used there is the Greek word scandalon, from which, of course, we get the English word scandal. And it's the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to describe Christ and the gospel and the cross. They are a scandal. They cause people to stumble. As far as the world is concerned, the gospel, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive. We, we, we cannot help but offend people if we tell them the gospel as it really is. That shouldn't surprise us. Now, we've got to do everything in our power to make sure that the offense doesn't lie with us, 
But the gospel is offensive. If you tell people that Jesus is a wonderful teacher, a good man who died tragically young, well, that won't offend them. But what you have to tell them is that Jesus is the Son of God who in his purity and his holiness died on the cross for sinners. And that's people like you and me. What does the cross say? The cross, the scandal of the cross, the offense of the cross is that my sin is so bad and God is so holy and I'm so wicked. The only thing that can deal with my sin is that the precious Son of God gives his life and sheds his blood in my place. That's how wicked sin is. Remember when they take Jesus and they put a blindfold across his eyes and then one after another they come and punch him in the face. Bang, bang. Who, who hit you? Who hit you? Who hit you? John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, says, you know, every time we sin, it's like a in the face of God. We're rebels. No such thing as a small sin, because there's no such thing as a small God to sin against. And so what does it cost for my salvation? What is the price It's the blood of Christ. It's what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. It's penal because Jesus isn't dying as an accident. He's dying as a punishment. He is being punished as the sins of a world are laid on his shoulders. He's experiencing the darkness and the horror of hell. But he's experiencing substitutionary. He's doing it on our behalf. He never sinned, but he bears our sin. He dies, he suffers in our place, and it leads to atonement. We're reconciled to God. If you're not a Christian tonight, this is the only way to be right with God. It may be offensive, but it's beautiful and it's glorious and it's wonderful. The gospel is offensive. And we shouldn't shouldn't be surprised that people stumble over it. And maybe up until this point, you have stumbled over it. And tonight is the night here in Keswick, On a Wednesday night, you come to know Christ for the first time. What will you do with his love? There's a little phrase at the end there, which which is a kind of a sting in the tail. Did you notice that? They stumbled because they disobeyed the message, which also is what they were destined for. And uh, in my Greek New Testament, that verse is actually in verse, uh, that phrase is actually in verse 9. So I was very tempted to say tomorrow night, when when Anne comes, she'll she'll, she'll deal with that. But actually... (laughs) In my passage here, it's in this verse, so, so we'll look at it. What do we mean by that? Well, it's referring, isn't it, to that, that mysterious doctrine of predestination or election. He's already mentioned it in verse 1. Verse 1, he says, you're the chosen. You're Christians because you were chosen. Now, the doctrine of election isn't a, a drum to beat or a banner to march under. It's a wonderfully comforting doctrine, actually, because what it means is that God is sovereign. He's in control. He's in control of all things. He will build his church and nothing will stand against it. It's a comfort. And the root of their unbelief is partly anyway because they refused to believe because God hadn't set his heart on them. There are two truths in the Bible. One is divine election and the other is human responsibility. One is about God's choice and the other is about our choice. God chooses and we choose. And here's the question which is is correct. Which is correct? Because the answer is both of them. <laughs> if we don't be honest to the Bible, 
It's not that one trumps the other. They're both true. When I became a Christian at 11, if you'd asked me, I was from a non-Christian home. I'd been seeking for God through children's ministry. I'd come to know about Jesus. I fled to the cross for salvation. What did you do? I chose Christ. I really did choose Christ. As the years went by, I came to realize that he'd also chosen me. He set his heart on me before the foundation of the world. You don't need to try and reconcile two things that, that, that you can't reconcile. You just need to hold both of them. What we want is theologians who in the end say, well, we go where the Bible says, not where our system goes. Spurgeon has a wonderful illustration. He says it's like a person walking down the road and there's this great big uh, gate. And over the gate are the words of invitation, come to Jesus. Everyone is welcome. Every single soul is welcome. Come. And and, and tonight it's as if Jesus stands here and, 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 and I'm giving you his word and his invitation tonight. And it's a genuine, authentic invitation. If you're not a Christian, come to Christ tonight. Come now. Come to the living stone. Be born again tonight. Trust in him. Believe in him. Don't stumble on him anymore. And the gate is there. And you go through the gate and on the other side you see the words, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And you say to me, explain that to me. Sorry, I can't. But I teach both. So where did we start? We started with the love of God. God loves you more than you can imagine. And he wants you to know it. He sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to the cross. That's the extent of his love. The precious son of God. Christian, the greatest disservice you can do to God is to doubt his love. He will never stop loving you. How long and wide and high and deep is the love of God. And it will never stop. But if you're not a Christian tonight, in my last two minutes, this is where I want to end. If you're not a Christian tonight, I want to ask you, what do you do with God's love? Is Christ still a stumbling block or will you respond to that love tonight? Or will you push him away yet again? Here's a a picture of of a Victorian lady, Elizabeth Barrett. Elizabeth Barrett lived in the 19th century. She was of a large family. I think she'd got 11 siblings, but she had a very, very strange dictatorial father. Her father said none of his children are allowed to get married. I want you to stay single so you can look after me in my old age. When she was a young girl, Elizabeth became ill. And uh, in her illness, she discovered poetry. She loved poetry. And she went to listen to a famous poet, Robert Browning. Long story short, she fell in love. They got married and they eloped. And her father cut her off. I never, you can't come in my house. I never want to speak to you again. And it broke her heart. Because she loved her husband, but she loved her father as well. So she wrote to him every week and the letters are are, are some of the most beautiful words in the English language oh father I love you please don't push me away My, my, my love for you is such that I long to be reconciled to you and she wrote these beautiful letters and he never responded about a year before his death she received a package and when she looked at the address she recognized her father's hand And she was so thrilled, at last he'd responded. And she opened the package, and this is what she found inside. All the letters she'd sent, the seal hadn't been broken, the envelope hadn't been opened, and the letter hadn't been read. All her overtures of love were rejected. She pushed her father, uh, he pushed her away. God so loved the world, he gave 
the darling of heaven, his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him, whoever believes on him, whoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Maybe you have come to Keswick this year and, and you know, your husband is a Christian or your wife's a Christian, not you. Maybe your parents are Christians. Maybe you're just, just here for what, you're not even sure why you're here. But you know you don't know Christ. And tonight you've heard of this amazing love and this wonderful saviour. Don't push him away. Don't use this, this mysterious doctrine of election as, a, as a, an excuse. Well, I don't know whether I'm chosen. He invites you genuinely, truly tonight to come. Will you come to Christ? Will you come to him tonight? Don't push away this wonderful love. Come to him tonight. Become a living stone in the greatest thing God is doing today, building a spiritual temple. Let's pray. Our God, as we bow in your presence this evening, we worship you. For those of us who are Christians, we, we cannot believe that you would love us so much. But Lord, we want to pray tonight that if there's anyone here who is not yet a Christian, who doesn't yet know you, even tonight, you would draw them to yourself, that tonight they might choose Christ. We ask that in his precious, precious name. Amen.